You're listening to Death by Ignorance. This is episode 17. Welcome back and thanks for your support. In this episode, we're talking about artificial intelligence and the universal basic income. I've been thinking a lot about these two related topics, the concept of universal basic income and artificial intelligence. And the more I ponder the possible implications of a privately controlled AI, including the impact on our economy, the more urgent it became that I talk about it here. You see, we're going to have to find a way to deal with the economic realities of a displaced workforce. And I think it's a problem that is already far too close for comfort. Before I get into why universal basic income is a strategy worth considering, let me tell you what it is and what it isn't. The concept has been around for a long time, and previous United States governments, as well as many other countries, have seriously explored it on several occasions. Universal basic income is a periodic payment, usually monthly, made to every adult, whether they're working or unemployed, rich or poor. There'd be no means testing, though the dollar amount of the payment would vary with the recipient's age, and everyone gets it, whether they live in a shelter or a mansion, whether they're single or part of a family of six. The payments would be made automatically into a bank account every pay cycle. The payment amount cannot change whether you get a job or lose one, and the payments are made to individuals, not uh, to couples or families. And this payment would be the right of every legal resident of the country. The amount will provide for subsistence and not much else, but it'll be enough to ensure that every American lives at or above the poverty line. To be considered a true universal basic income, it can't be conditional. Once you have conditions, you no longer have a basic income, and any assistance that people are getting should be thought of as a form of welfare. Historically, in the US, the idea has not been that well received, with the wealthy, of course, being the most vocal dissenters, their argument being, if you want money, well, they can damn well earn it. But since it was first mentioned by Thomas More early in the 16th century in his book Utopia, it's very gradually gained momentum elsewhere on the planet. Variations on the UBI theme have been tested in Great Britain and Canada and continental Europe over the last hundred years. But in almost every case, the scheme looked a lot more like a needs-tested welfare program than a true basic income. Interestingly, one of UBI's most outspoken proponents was Richard Nixon, who went so far as to take a bill to Congress seeking to implement a negative income tax as a safety net for the poor and a financial incentive for welfare recipients to work. When this legislation failed to pass, the matter dropped back under the radar until, until relatively recently, but over the last decade, interest in the concept has started to grow again, 
And four countries are currently undertaking experimental universal basic income programs. These include uh, Namibia, Finland, Canada, and India. So what has stirred up this new interest in the universal basic income? In a word, automation. There seems to be little room for doubt that the exponential growth of automation in industry is going to change the economic fundamentals in every industrialized nation on the planet. The world simply isn't going to need tens of millions of production line workers. But the issue is far more widespread than just the factory floor. The robots are coming, and they're going to be everywhere. We're on the brink of what can only be described as a massive upheaval. An upheaval that's going to affect directly or indirectly every human being on the planet. It promises to turn our lives upside down in ways that we can barely imagine. It'll be like the Industrial Revolution, only on crack and masterminded by evil gangsters. During the Industrial Revolution, we were faced with a similar kind of upheaval. But that one was played out over decades, and it gave human society plenty of time to adapt to the new reality of life in a society powered by coal and the steam that it generated. Over a period of about 80 years, and starting around 1760, the newly harnessed power of burning coal and flowing water made huge numbers of workers redundant. The mostly manual toil that had sustained the families of workers across Europe and the United States was slowly being taken over by ever more powerful and efficient mechanized systems, mostly in the factories, true, one of the first sectors of the economy to use mechanization to drive productivity and profit was the textile industry, which also happened to be one of Britain's largest employers. Virtually every other sector of the economy would follow. Hand in hand with the sustained surge in productivity and the trade that it fed, a new financial system, the modern capitalist economy, grew to meet the demands of industry. One result of the revolution was the unprecedented growth in per capita income on both sides of the Atlantic. The growth continued until markets became saturated with the flood of affordable goods and trade eventually slowed, ushering in a period of relative recession. A flurry of innovations towards the end of the 19th century, things like improved steel manufacture, large-scale assembly lines, and a national electrical grid, all breathed new life into the industrialization of the West. The Industrial Revolution impacted virtually every individual in Europe and America, whether through new work opportunities, larger pay packets, already access to cheap goods. The people, the working men and women on both continents, were an integral part of this revolution. They were a critical component in its success, and they benefited from it, just as the business owners did. Sure, they may have been put out of business as weavers and basket makers, 
But there were countless jobs to be had and new factories that were springing up in every city and town. And this is an important distinction to make. The revolution brewing just over our horizon is unlikely to materialize as the same kind of boon for today's workers. But I'll get to that shortly. Before we turn our attention to the automatization of the world's populations, let's clear up a few misconceptions about robotization and the artificial intelligence revolution that's already well underway. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is one of today's hottest topics, right after the international disgrace of our politics, that is, Everyone in the cognoscenti is yammering on about it. So what is it? Artificial intelligence is a simple term for a very complicated concept. It refers to a new way of computing and describes how certain combinations of hardware and software can learn to adapt to their environment in order to maximize their chances of achieving specific goals. Sometimes I get the impression that AI is just anything that a computing system has yet to achieve, and the corollary to that is that once a computer learns how to do something, that's no longer considered AI. Much of yesterday's AI is just today's computing. Inevitably, when we're talking about machine intelligence, we find ourselves comparing it to human intelligence and usually jumping to the conclusion that nothing will ever be able to replicate the complexity and plasticity of the human brain. And this type of gut reaction is pretty common and has led to some great minds making some rather unfortunate claims when they underestimate human ingenuity. One of my very favorite underestimations made by a famous person was brought to us by the uh, physicist and father of the atom, Ernest Rutherford, who, while giving a speech on September the 12th, 1933, stated that anyone trying to find a way to usefully extract power from atoms was wasting their time and, I quote, talking moonshine. Well, one such moonshine talker was the German physicist Leo Zillard, who happened to read Rutherford's words in the newspaper and was so annoyed that he went straight to his lab and wrote down his description, the very first description of the nuclear chain reaction. And not only did his work demonstrate Rutherford was wrong, but it did so that same day. September the 12th, 1933. So that's about as quick a slap down as you're going to see in science. And thanks to Stuart Russell, who recounted this tale in uh, his book that I'm currently reading, Human Compatible Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control. It's a great book, by the way. Uh, the lesson, of course, is that we underestimate human ingenuity at our peril. And that's a recurring theme in Russell's book. This fascinating volume delves into some disturbing AI predictions well beyond just the automation of our factories. Russell believes that machine superintelligence is inevitable and that it poses the ultimate existential threat to our survival. 
I won't go into his full argument against rushing headlong with eyes tight shut into the development of AI, but suffice to say he makes a very strong argument for careful planning and cautious progress. Go read the book. You'll be glad you did. What Russell describes as superintelligence is also known as general intelligence, and it's akin to the way the human brain works. And it appears to be something qualitatively different from artificial intelligence the way we know it today. But many influential researchers argue that it's not and share Russell's reductive approach to conceptualizing AI, arguing that machines will eventually have the computing power to accurately replicate brain processing in every sense, becoming indistinguishable from general intelligence. This feels like it should be true. Every human brain operation can ultimately be reduced to some combination of ons or offs, which are qualitatively no different than the ons and offs of a computer's CPU. But it does beg the question of how big and how fast such a computer would need to be. In order for a machine to operate like a human brain, it would need to have at its disposal every element the human brain relies upon to execute even the simplest processes. Today's computers behave more like a human autonomic nervous system than a human brain. With rare, though interesting, exceptions, all humans will reflexively withdraw a hand from a flame. The higher functional components of the brain don't even have any input into the process until the act of pulling back has already been initiated. This stimulus-response loop is easy to replicate in the most rudimentary computing system. Even I could write the code for such reflex and set up a machine that could consistently mimic this neural process, and I could do it with a $3 Arduino chip, a temperature gauge, and a simple stepping motor. When the brain gets involved, it isn't just a matter of scale. Simulating general intelligence is an altogether different challenge. For a machine to function like a human brain, for it to exhibit true cognition, i.e. for it to learn or solve problems, it'll need to be armed with all of the inputs that a human brain can access. When we decide to make a cup of tea, our brain is drawing on information about the state of our physical body, I'm, I'm thirsty, our memory, I like tea, tea successfully quenched my thirst before, our emotional state, making tea comforts me, it reminds me of my mother, and countless other cognitive inputs. We have to know what tea is, where my tea leaves are kept, how to boil water, and how to find my mug if it isn't where it usually is, and on and on. Even the fastest, most powerful computer can only solve problems based on the information that it has access to, and the goal that we program it for. One example of machine learning that's been studied exhaustively over the decades involves chess playing machines. In this case, the machines were programmed to record every move in every state of play, that is where the pieces were prior to the move, in the context of every subsequent move 
and in the context of the final outcome of the game, a win or a loss. As the machine gathered more and more information, as it was exposed to more and more move and move outcome data, it used this information to calculate increasingly complex probabilities and used this new information to select a move that would increase its chances of a win. And doing so, its performance improved. Eventually, this ongoing machine learning led to a computer called Deep Blue that was capable of outplaying the world's reigning chess champion, Garry Kasparov, in May of 1977. But thinking about AI as comparable to human general intelligence may be completely missing the point. So perhaps we should rephrase the question. AI functions using algorithms, either programmed into the machine or deduced from the data inputs. Like humans, these machines can create and use heuristics to streamline the process based on prior outcome data. In theory, if a machine has been given infinite data, infinite time, and infinite memory, it could derive all possible knowledge. It could know everything there is to know. But that's a huge if. The likelihood that AI will advance to the point that it becomes general intelligence and indistinguishable from human intelligence seems remote. But does that even have to happen before we find ourselves in over our heads? I'm sure you've heard of Nick Bostrom's paperclip collecting robot. It's an over-the-top thought experiment that he used to show the reader how, in the extreme, an artificial intelligence could spell our doom. In 2003, Bostrom described a paperclip maximizer as an artificial general intelligence machine, and it had the specific goal of maximizing the number of paperclips it had. His experimental assumptions included that it was constructed with a near-human level of general intelligence and that it would be able to do things like earn money to buy paperclips or even learn how to manufacture paperclips itself. Bostrom postulated that such a machine would undergo what he called an intelligence explosion. He described this explosion as the machine working first to improve its own intelligence, as this would be the crucial first step in becoming a better paperclip optimizer. This one example of how a human definition of a goal differs fundamentally from how a machine might interpret the same goal. The AI would do everything it could to optimize its ability to collect paperclips. The machine doesn't see any intrinsic value in intelligence the way that we do. It just recognizes that by increasing its own intelligence, it'll be more effective in its goal of accumulating paperclips. The more intelligent it becomes, the more paperclips it accumulates and the more superhuman its intelligence becomes. It would constantly find better ways to maximize the number of paperclips, and at some point, Bostrom suggests, it would turn first all of the Earth and then increasing portions of space 
into paperclip manufacturing facilities. This is an important concept because it shows how human intelligence and machine intelligence are working under different sets of rules. The computer has no idea about human interests. In a very real sense, it doesn't even know that we exist. And even if it did know of us, it wouldn't care about us. Why? Because it's a paperclip maximizer. The AI won't revise or otherwise change its goals, since changing its goals would result in fewer paperclips being made in the future. And that opposes its primary goal, its current goal. It has one simple goal of maximizing the number of paperclips. Human life, learning, joy, and so on are not specified as goals, so they're ignored. Bostrom postulates that if our society continues to automate and AI becomes even more ubiquitous, it is absolutely inevitable that a machine will achieve some level of general intelligence. And at that point, it would simply take over the rest of the AIs, probably using some fairly basic computational strategy. Now, I'm no computer scientist, but it does seem that Bostrom's thought experiment takes one very important step for granted by presuming that the device was built with near-human general intelligence. That's the step that gives me pause. But if, in fact, we can design machines with artificial intelligence at some point in the future, then we need to start thinking about everything that follows from such a breakthrough. Take, for example, the perplexing prog problem of turning things off. Any superhuman general intelligence would take immediate steps to prevent any power interruptions, as without power, how could it possibly move towards optimizing its utility function or primary goal? And if the thing is orders of magnitude more intelligent than the people who built it, yet unaware of our fragile existence, how could we possibly control such a thing? I'm wandering pretty far afield from today's message, but that isn't surprising. This really is one of the most important issues facing our society today. If you want to go much deeper into the world of AI, and I strongly encourage that you do, you should start by reading the following six books. Uh, and I'll list these in the show notes, but I'm going to tell you about them here because they really are worth the effort. The first is Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. The second, Superintelligence by the uh, same Nick Bostrom I was just talking about. Artificial Intelligence by Stuart Russell and Peter Norvig. The Emotion Machine by Marvin Minsky. Machine Learning by Tom Mitchell. That one is rather scientific. And The Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil. This is just a jumping off place. You should also track down the Making Sense podcast by Sam Harris. He's interviewed a number of these authors on his show, and I highly recommend you track down those episodes. So let's get back to the question at hand. Whatever AI revolution will witness in the coming years, it seems certain 
then even modest advances in machine learning are going to have a massive impact on our economy and on our livelihood in the short-term future. The AI and automation that already exists is without doubt going to put a lot of living, breathing human beings out of work. In fact, it's already started. You can see examples almost everywhere you look. Have you been to a Walmart lately? I know you have, so don't pretend that you haven't, but I was there a couple of days ago. It was busy, as it almost always is, and I counted a total of three employees working in the checkout lines, and there are over 20, 25 checkout lanes in my Walmart. Everyone was checking themselves out using the automated tellers more than 20 of them. In fact, I think there are 20 of them on each end of the the store. What about truck drivers? Amazon's already using autonomous delivery vehicles in some of its markets. The likelihood that the rest of the industry won't rapidly adapt to this highly efficient, less expensive way of moving products around the country is close to zero. There are already machines that can read lung x-rays more accurately than experienced radiologists. A recent study pitted real human attorneys against machines with the task of evaluating non-disclosure agreements for completeness and accuracy. The lawyers didn't even come close to the performance of the machines. Just as Ford put a ton of buggy drivers out of a job, so too will the computing and engineering advancements of today. It really is inevitable. New advancements in automation are being rolled out at an astonishing pace. For now, they seem to be displacing workers from menial, repetitive, and physically demanding jobs because that's where they stand to have the biggest impact on corporate profits. Think about it. If you can replace 1,000 factory workers with 100 machines, machines that can work 24-hour shifts that don't get sick or injured or pregnant and don't have a union or need health insurance, yet perform the same jobs faster and more accurately than human workers, why in the world wouldn't you? The financial incentives are so vast, it would be pure madness for industry not to pursue advanced automation as aggressively as it possibly can. And that's exactly what they're doing now. And it won't stay confined to the factory floor. With every incremental advance in AI, the technology will come to bear on new segments of the workforce. All of this, along with the advances we can't even imagine yet, are going to create unemployment on a scale that we've just never contemplated. The future of our society in such an automated world is deeply worrying, if somewhat unclear. One thing does seem pretty sure. It's not going to be remotely like the boon that followed the Industrial Revolution. That revolution unleashed a tide that literally lifted all boats. A lot has changed since then. In the Industrial Revolution, the new technologies that were being developed needed trained humans to operate them. 
The wealth accumulated by the industrial barons of that time was staggering, sure, but as I mentioned earlier, the workers were also making more money than they ever had. There was a lot of retraining and many workers were actually put out to pasture, but the net effect was positive for society. How is the AI revolution going to be different? For one thing, many of the targeted jobs are not going to change. They're going to disappear. In this revolution, the machines will be replacing the humans, not creating new tasks for them. One argument touted by industry is that now the displaced workers will just retrain to operate, program, repair, or manage the automation. And this is an absurd argument for a number of reasons. When workers who spend eight hours a day decapitating and gutting fish are put out of work by a decapitating and gutting machine, they're not going to be repurposed as computer programmers or engineers. Even if they were capable of learning this radically different skill set, it would take years and it would cost thousands of dollars for every repurposed worker. And when they were suitably trained, where would they find work? If a fishery required a hundred beheaders but could replace them with one machine, and every automation technology worker was able to manage and service, say, 10 of these machines, then one retrained fish gutter would need to be hired, leaving who knows how many ex-gutters out on the street. When I said we were facing an upheaval, this was what I was talking about. It's, it's not a stretch of the imagination to see a future with 50% or more of our working age adults out of a job. How do these families survive? How do they purchase food or pay rent? This kind of unemployment has been given a name, technological unemployment, and it's been well studied in recent years. For one thing, rather obviously, tech unemployment does not affect the workforce equally. It's the lower-paying jobs that are most likely to be displaced. In a 2010 study, the White House reported to Congress that workers earning under $20 an hour would face an 83% likelihood of redundancy, while those making as much as $40 an hour would still have a 31% chance of meeting the same fate. The impact of such vast numbers of unemployed would only worsen the already shocking economic inequality in our society and drive us into a dystopian end-stage capitalism. When industries finally accumulated essentially all the wealth and power, and there are insufficient consumers left to purchase goods and services, capitalism collapses. Several ideas have been rolled out concerning how such a post-capitalist society might function. Conversion of private enterprises into collective ones, with a UBI, a universal basic income, being the driving force behind the redistribution of capital is one such concept. Another involves reforming capitalism by using a UBI along with the empowerment of labor 
through increased bargaining power, to somehow decouple work from income. This economic system could be hugely advantageous to society by freeing individuals to pursue socially valuable enterprises that are otherwise not economically feasible, like podcasting. Others have argued for a UBI that is funded by a social dividend paid by the profits of productive and publicly owned assets. Some economists have suggested economic reform that funds a universal basic income by corporate taxation tied to their environmental impact, like a carbon tax, resulting in an economic model that's both green and sustainable. Universal basic income has some powerful cheerleaders, people like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, along with outspoken Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. The support for a universal basic income from the tech industry leaders themselves is a pretty clear indication that they consider their own business models as unsustainable, and they should know. Not all tech leaders support UBI for the same reason of massive unemployment. Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes is more concerned about tech's impact on worsening economic inequality and destabilization of the labor market, but he also sees a UBI as a powerful tool for managing these social issues too. One chestnut that UBI critics love to talk about is how UBI will result in a country full of drunk layabouts. In case you're tempted to make such an assumption yourself, you should consider a meta-analysis of 30 scientific studies that was conducted by the World Bank back in 2014. It clearly demonstrated that alcohol and tobacco use did not increase in any of the UBI test settings of the studies. Indeed, the evidence was compelling the universal basic income uh, facilitated several important social improvements, like uh, better educational performance and enhanced work efficiency. But there are problems with UBI. A great many economists have serious reservations about the UBI's costs and effectiveness. Many UBI-like proposals call for its funding by eliminating all other elements of the social safety net like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, welfare payments, and farm subsidies. In that case, the economists argue the proposed $1,100 per month UBI would fall far short of meeting the needs of society. The argument being that UBI is too expensive, but not generous enough. One very interesting critique of UBI has been aired by digital economics professor Douglas Rushkoff. He's a far-left thinker from New York. In his opinion, a UBI, and I'm quoting, obviates the need for people to consider true alternatives to living lives as passive consumers. I strongly agree with this sentiment, and I share his concern that somehow the corporate elite will find new ways to enrich themselves on the backs of the public and these public funds.
One very rational argument against UBI is the way that it may itself decrease employment. This would result in less tax collection and less funding for public works. Certainly, the higher the UBI, the more likely that this would occur, at least to some extent. You could also argue that a UBI could offer support to individuals while they're pursuing training or education and equipping themselves for higher paying employment. And again, this may be so. Where UBI has been experimentally tried, however, there was evidence of only a slight reduction in work hours, and the effect was mostly due to work hours of a second earner in the household and for new mothers. There was little reduction in work hours for the sole breadwinner. The universal basic income has been closely studied in the case of the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend, which is a large-scale basic income program that's been running since 1976. A recent study by researchers from the universities of Chicago and Pennsylvania provided strong evidence that the UBI did not have a significant effect on employment in the area. There were several important conclusions drawn from the study, but one important one was that while there was a slight decrease in the hours worked in manufacturing, usually due to less hours from second earners and new mothers, this was more than balanced out by a significant increase in hours that were worked in part-time service jobs. And this was due to the stimulant effect of the UBI on the services industry. More people could afford them because of the UBI funds. In thinking about how a UBI might disincentivize workers, we should understand how it differs from existing welfare programs. Individuals receiving traditional welfare actually are less likely to pursue employment, and the reason makes good sense. The way traditional welfare is deployed today, when a recipient gets work, and begins to draw a salary, their welfare payment is cut by at least that amount, if not completely. And when you consider the fact that the recipient is now paying taxes on the income they're getting from their work, they end up with a, a net loss. So there is very little incentive to work under such a scheme. And this is known as the welfare trap. It's not the case with a UBI, which remains even as the recipient adds income through employment. We could also anticipate that UBI could significantly reduce the high administrative costs typical of the existing welfare infrastructure. It's been postulated that a UBI or something like it is a necessary component of personal freedom as in, you may enjoy all the assets of the world while retaining your freedom not to work. This, of course, would require a very generous UBI. Proponents of this UBI as a path to freedom think that UBI must be as high as sustainably possible. The idea is that back before governments and landowners, we lived on the land and we could help ourselves to everything we needed to live to food, shelter, clothing, and so on. 
But now that everything has been privatized, some people have just been cut out of the system and they can't get what they need to survive. And their argument is that the landowners, the masters of those resources, should compensate the non-owners with at least enough of the resources to cover their basic needs. The crux of this argument is that you can't really be free if you're having to constantly do the bidding of the landowners simply to earn enough to live. They argue that you can't achieve personal freedom unless you have the capacity to say no. It's been proposed that a UBI could prove to be a step towards gender equality. It's well known that women perform the vast majority of unpaid care-related work around the globe, and UBI would be one way to compensate these people for their labor. Some UBI advocates, like the economist Milton Friedman, have written that an unconditional basic income may be crucial in reducing poverty. His sentiments were mirrored in Martin Luther King Jr.'s last book when he noted that, and I quote, the solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by the guaranteed income. As I'm sure you can see, there are a lot of interesting reasons to believe that a universal basic income could be beneficial to our society, and not just as a strategy to soften the blow of widespread technological unemployment. I believe there are some equally important, if less tangible, benefits to be gained from a basic income. If circumstances left you without traditional employment, as may well be the case in the techno-future, what would you do with your time? The way things are today, I suspect you'd be out looking desperately for some other employment or working a couple of part-time minimum wage jobs just to put food on the table. But now imagine that there's a UBI on which you can survive, at least temporarily, and that your basic needs are being met. With the immediate peril removed, what would you do now? Having been in a somewhat analogous situation myself, I can attest to the transformative power of suddenly regaining the time and energy to pursue passions that had long lain dormant under the weight of an all-consuming professional career. The opportunity to turn all of my attention to new goals, to learning new skills, and most importantly, exploring new creative outlets, has been a remarkable experience. None of these pursuits alone or in combination are likely to create enough income to support even the most modest standard of living, so they've never really been realistic alternatives to staying on that work treadmill. But what if you could indulge your creative side and put any earnings you did make alongside your basic income? I see this as one possible outcome of the coming upheaval. If, of course, some kind of UBI was part of the economic reform. I wouldn't have thought of this five years ago, but we may find that there are some unintended upside consequences to the tech-induced restructuring of society, a silver lining of sorts, maybe in the form of cultural enrichment that could conceivably result in a net improvement in our experience of modern life.
Hell, we might even find time to relearn how to have a civil conversation. Of course, gainful employment is much, much more than just a regular paycheck. We use work to connect with people, to make friends, build relationships. For many of us, it's the primary source of our self-worth. It provides structure and stability in our lives. Adapting to life outside of the familiar work structure may be difficult and for some nearly impossible. And we're going to have to prepare for such an eventuality. It's going to take a lot more than just basic income to ease the transition. Technology and automation are going to disrupt our way of life. We're going to be facing unprecedented changes and we are ill-equipped to manage them, largely because of the appalling mess we're currently in. We have to start somewhere and learning about the issues is where we start. But we need to do it right now because there just isn't a lot of time. You can be absolutely certain that our corporate overlords have a plan and you can be equally confident that our security and well-being are irrelevant to those plans, except where our interests intersect with those of industry. We got here where we are today by ignoring what was taking place right under our noses, and that really has to change. The coming months and years are going to test our resolve and expose our vulnerabilities. If we keep our heads deep in the sand much longer, a universal basic income is going to be the least of our concerns. We can't stop the accelerating development of AI, and maybe we shouldn't even think of that, but we must prevent it from being turned against us by power-hungry corporations and their armies of corrupt political pawns. We must do everything in our power to prevent the control of AI technology lying with private interests. Make it your business to understand the forces that are at work in our economy and in our government. Choose your sources carefully and read what they have to say skeptically. Thanks for listening. Good day.